Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is the final week of a three-week series on the person of Jesus. It's been really fun. I love talking about Jesus. The first week, we, um, we talked about his nature, him being fully God and fully man in one body, and he will be so forever. And then week two, we talked about his works. You know, and, and each one of these weeks can be such a huge topic. At the end of the book of John, John says that if you were to, you know, scribe down, if you were to write down everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be room in the whole world to contain the books. And so um, this is going to be a three-hour message today. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 seriously. Uh, we... Last week was uh, his works, and I, and I felt like the Lord really wanted us to focus on his main work, which was to transfer us, to save us out of the law of sin and death, and bring us underneath the law of the Spirit. It's called the law of the Spirit of life, and you can read about it in Romans 7 and 8. <clears throat> and it's a really great place to be, isn't it? Yes. Underneath that law of the Spirit. Um, and this week, we're going to talk about his legacy. Yes, he drives a Subaru. No? No car guys? Subaru legacy? It's all-wheel drive. It's great for the snow. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about his legacy today, uh, which is, you know, another huge topic. Um, and so I wanted to, uh, first of all, just talk about what a legacy is. Uh, I looked it up, and uh, some of the synonyms for it are birthright, inheritance, bestowal, or heritage. And so today I want to talk about what Jesus has passed down to us. And uh, there are three things. Uh, it's not a complete list, but there are three things that I wanted to focus on today. His legacy towards us is he... Number one, became, and then dismantled the curse. In the garden, Adam and Eve... You know, they were placed in paradise, and then they were told to till the earth, you know, to, to cultivate it, to subdue it, uh, to multiply, and to commune with God. And um, Rick Joyner always asks this question, what kind of work is there to do in a garden with no weeds? <laughs> right? And so uh, it, it means that the, the Lord wants us to expand paradise. Yes. He wants us to just make the kingdoms of the world into the kingdoms of our God. But something happened. Uh, they, they sinned. And, you know, paradise actually had to react to the fallen nature of man. Because man in his perfect nature b before the fall, he, had, he governed wisely and he cultivated the earth uh, generously, but after the fall enters all this greed and self-promotion. And so uh, a, a, the paradise actually had to react, and God initiated something, and he said that the earth will produce thorns. 
and you're going to work it by the sweat of your brow. Like you're going to eat the food by the sweat of your brow, which means that <clears throat> these thorns actually represent this curse of self-preservation. The earth actually had to protect, protect itself from man. And, um, <clears throat> and all of those desires that were from God ended up getting twisted and mingled with all sorts of selfishness. And so, um, this is always fun. What is that? No, that is a pre-fall cactus. What is this? <laughs> that is a post-fall cactus. Before the fall, cactuses were green pillows. <laughs> With water inside. You could just kick those things over and have a drink. But after the fall, these things had to protect themselves from the evil that was now inside man because we took on the nature of Satan. <clears throat> I would draw a pre-fall rose, but you guys get the, get the hang of it. <laughs> the earth literally creates this, this, it releases this self-preservation curse. Uh, travelers actually call the Holy Land a land of thorns. If you look at pictures of Israel, often there are just these, these thorn bushes that are taller than men. These giant thistles, I got this from Wikipedia, uh, growing to the height of a man on horseback. They frequently spread over entire regions that were once rich and fruitful. And many of the most interesting historic spats and ruins are rendered almost inaccessible by thickets of fiercely armed buckthorns. In other words, Israel's prickly and it's spread all over the world. <clears throat> um, but something, uh, I started to notice this pattern in scripture that um, I hope I can articulate today. Um, this guy named Moses comes along and uh, the Lord chooses him to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery. And the way that he does that is the Lord shows up in a bush, and in a burning bush, but the bush was not consumed. Do you know what kind of bush that was? A thorn bush. See, the Lord was already getting inside the curse for us. He is already appearing like a curse. It says so in Acts uh, 7.30 and 35. And then uh, I also noticed um, before that in, in uh, Genesis 22, the first mention of the word love it's in 222222 and it says Abraham uh, take the son your son Isaac whom you love and sacrifice him and uh, so Isaac is is an archetype or a, a a foreshadowing of Jesus who's to come he's the son of promise and Isaac is a type and shadow of or I'm sorry and Abraham is a type and shadow of the father and so the father is now taking the son of promise 
and he's going to sacrifice him. And Abraham says, you know, the, the Lord's going to provide some way. You know, he's going to bring him back from the dead if he has to. But he, he demonstrates perfect obedience to God, and he's going to sacrifice his son. But what happens is that there's a ram that... There's an angel that says, stop, you know, steady your hand. Don't stab your son. Don't sacrifice him. And he sees a ram and its head is caught in what? A thorn bush. Guys, you can't write that kind of foreshadowing. These books are written... The Gospels where Jesus comes and he has a thorn bush on his head... A crown of thorns that he's wearing. Those are written hundreds and hundreds of years after and Genesis by completely different writers. You can see this, this beautiful plot is being woven. That although we made this huge mistake and the Lord releases this curse on us, he was actually inside of it the whole time. When he spoke that curse over creation and over us, he fully intended to be the one to undo it, to get inside it, to suffer that curse more than anyone so that we could be led back to an understanding of his love for us. See, he's always coming and looking like a curse. It even says in Isaiah 53, we talked about this, that Jesus had no beauty that we should desire to look upon him. Like, like one from whom men hide their faces. That's my Jesus. He looks like a curse. In, uh, in the garden, there, is the, there are two trees that we know of. There are many trees, but two famous trees. There's the tree of life and the, the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. Well, Adam and Eve were digging on the knowledge of good and evil. That looked good to eat. And so they ate of it. And then what the Lord says within himself, he says, lest man take and eat of the tree of life and live forever. He's become like one of us. He's become like us. And so we can't let him now eat of the tree of life, which means that Adam and Eve, maybe they had never eaten of it. It's, it's got to mean that, because if they ate of it, it wouldn't have died. Which means to me that that tree probably looked pretty ugly. I know it did. Because do you know what the tree of life looks like today? A torn up, bloodied man with his beard ripped out and a crown of thorns on his head, bleeding from nails in his hands and his ankles and the skin ripped off his back, hanging on a dead tree. That's what the tree of life looks like. And the one who eats of it will live forever. But it doesn't look so tasty, does it? See, Jesus showed us a way of living without thorns. All of us, at some point in our life, have held out our hearts, offered our hearts to someone, only to end up getting hurt, right? And, and all of us have learned this evil skill of now 
protecting ourselves, keeping people at arm's length. Don't let anyone in too close. I'm telling you that that is an evil skill. I challenge you uh, to, to search out what that verse, uh, I forgot where it is, but it says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. God is not saying keep people away from you. He's saying, guard that place of encounter with me because out of that place of encounter with me, all of life is going to flow out of you. Because I know that, that verse doesn't mean to keep people at arm's length because of what Jesus demonstrated for us. He knew what was inside a man's heart and he took a thief and his future murderer and put him over the money and brought him into his community and loved on him for years, all the while knowing this is going to be the guy that really sticks it to me. But he, he was laying down his life. See, Jesus lived in such a way where he, uh, he wanted to be the one that got hit. Instead of someone hitting you, he wanted to take the hit for you. He would get smacked on one side of his face and then he would turn and offer his other cheek in a clear shot so that the people punching him wouldn't break their knuckles. If you're looking for someone to hit, hit me, is what Jesus is saying. Don't hit them. I will take it. See, he lived without thorns so that the thorns that were placed on his head had no hold on him. So he went in the grave and came out. And what went in the grave and stayed in the grave were the thorns. They didn't come back out with him. And he's brought us into a reality and a new life where we can live without that curse. See, a lot of the church still sees Jesus um, <clears throat> just on the cross. They've forgotten that he's resurrected. And they see Jesus on the cross, and that's their image of the body of Christ. And so a lot of the church still is wearing thorns. And that is an insanity. That is the, the, the pain and, and the constant exhausting struggle to keep people at arm's length and to present an image of yourself that you think is acceptable. You know that internal muscle that, we, that we're always flexing, you know, when we're out in public or we're meeting new people where we're trying to make ourselves seem a certain way? Anybody ever been to a networking meeting before? <laughs> I was in insurance. I went to tons of networking meetings. Hey, brother! Blessed and highly favored. Everything's going great. <laughs> That is exhausting. And Jesus shows us you, you don't have to do that. You can be yourself. You can let people in. And so he actually didn't just become a curse for us. He became the curse for us. Him who knew no sin became sin. Mm-mm-mm. There's a scripture, there's plenty of scriptures around this theme, but there's one that says, I, the Lord, fight for you. See, we were, uh, we were never designed to fight our own battles. 
to defend ourselves. Survival of the fittest is actually a post-fall ideology. The, the reality that Jesus brings on the scene is lay down your lives for one another. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his brother. You know, the, the happiest state of life is when you're in love, right? It, I mean, all the, all the synapses are firing in your brain and you're just flooded with endorphins because you're in love. Do you know that the, the happiest state that you will ever find in life is when you are laying down your life for someone because you will have great, great love surging through you. You will experience it. There will be times when it's really painful, but it will be the most fulfilling life that you will ever find. It's laying down your life for someone. All right. More about his legacy. <clears throat> Number two. We are now... What am I doing? Body F. <laughs> Christ. We are now his body. Uh, one of Jesus' infamous sermons is, is found in John chapter 6. And in this chapter, Jesus has hundreds, actually thousands of followers. He just multiplied food. People were following him around like he was a Walmart with wisdom. <laughs> <clears throat> Like all of their sustenance and all of their inspiration was coming from one man. And in this moment is when he chose to give the most weird sermon he's ever given. He says, you have to eat me. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he didn't explain himself. He didn't, he didn't fast forward, oh, you know, 2,000 years in the future, that means you're going to be eating crackers and drinking grape juice. No, <laughs> he just left it. He just left it at that. You got to eat me. Whoever eats of this bread that comes down from heaven will live forever. And uh, within uh, 25 verses, Jesus says seven times that I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And so uh, most churches on like the first Sunday of the month, they bring out the, the wafers and the grape juice. And what's that called? Communion. Yes. The essence of that word is common union. We are, we are taking part as one body. This is our common union. Uh, the, the bread that came down from heaven in the desert is called manna. And the common union that Israel had at that time is that they were starving and hungry in the desert. And they were, they were called by God. And so they had this common union, and manna came down from heaven. And then Jesus, in, in John chapter 6, says that uh, your forefathers ate that bread in the desert, but they died. He who eats of this bread will live forever. And so it really offended a lot of people. Uh, it's the cannibal teaching. Um, <laughs> There are probably about 10,000 people present. And in uh, John 666, 666, guys, there are no mistakes in the Bible. In John 666, it says many of his disciples followed him no longer. They turned away and they followed him no longer. And so what, what is crazy to me is that Jesus is giving 
us the teaching that is supposed to bring more unity and more togetherness than any other teaching and is the very teaching that blew everything up. That offended everyone and spread everyone to the wind. And I'm telling you guys that it is the same today. It is the teaching of becoming one body, united, getting in each other's business, like getting in each other's lives, getting in the, the, uh, the foxholes with each other. This teaching of valuing someone else over yourself is the very teaching that is still blowing the church apart. It is still offending people. If I, were to, if I were to pour out something that was worth $50,000, a flask of perfume or oil, if I were to pour it out on Chad right now, and it was irrecoverable, I would venture to say that some of you would be offended at that waste. I would. I need 50,000. That'd be awesome. Okay. <laughs> that would be awesome. Dad. So anyway, but if I poured it out on him and it was completely irrecoverable, we would be offended. We would say, why this waste? But Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. Jesus talks about the uh, greatest commandment. And then he backs it up with, an, like right away, with another commandment. And he says it's just like it. He says, love the, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And love others as you'd love yourself. It might be possible that um, we would have a much deeper, more fulfilling relationship with God if we just started laying down our lives for one another. If I poured out something that was worth $50,000 on, on Chad Beatty to honor him, again, it would be offensive. I would be thinking, this, we could be buying like a, a, a tour bus for Encounter Jesus School. Or like, <laughs> we could be feeding the poor for a, a really long time with $50,000. But instead, just to pour it out in honor, it represents just giving your life in order to love someone else. And Jesus absolutely loves that. And so we have this thing called uh, communion, and it represents us being the body of Christ. There are at least seven verses where it says that the church is now the body of Christ. His body And um, after all the disciples scattered in John 6.66, Jesus turns to the original A-team and says, do you guys want to leave me too? He's given them an out, like an out. Everybody's left. Now would be a good time if you want to scoot too. And Peter says something that I believe is the key for us to endure in a place of community through any kind of offense. And he says, to whom shall we go? In other words, he's not saying, where am I going to go? Peter has had this revelation that Jesus is his home. Home is a person. His name is Jesus. To whom shall I go now, Lord? And then he says this, the second key, you have the words of eternal life. And so 
um, as a church, Storehouse Church, we are highly devoted to those two things that Peter just said. Community and fresh revelation. Because if you have community, you, if you have the, the best friends you've ever had in a church, and on top of it, the church is, is actually feeding you fresh you know, revelation, and, and you're getting you know, words from God in, in your own you know, quiet time with the Lord or whatever, then you are going to endure through any kind of offense. There will be nothing that could drop a bomb to blow you out of that church because you've got, where, to whom am I going to go? There is not another Candace Hodges out there. There is not another Drake. There is not another Charles Horning. I am not going to leave this place. We're one. We're one body, and I know my place. <clears throat> this is the legacy that Jesus left us. So that looks like us caring for one another's needs. We had a, a student in a Encounter Jesus school a couple of semesters ago. They woke up and their car was sitting on cinder blocks. They had, a, they had a pretty nice Acura and, it, and, and <laughs> the wheels were gone. I mean, that is a, just a bad morning. And so they come to class, you know, all snoopy faced and uh, <laughs> Is it Snoopy? No. Well, who's, the, who's the depressed one? Eeyore. 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 Yeah, they're all Eeyore. <laughs> Snoopy is the dancer. <laughs> no, they come to class and they're all Eeyore. And we find out what happened. And when they leave the room, we quickly take up an offering. They're out of the room, and so we've got a bunch of people in you know, their early 20s, late teens. These are all of our students. They're, most of them are just you know, getting their feet on the ground and you know, working waiter jobs or whatever. They don't have money is what I'm trying to say. We take up an offering, and over $600 comes in, which was $30 more than they needed for new wheels and tires. In that moment, we became the body. We laid down our $20 bills for each other. <laughs> I met a man uh, out on the, in the, uh, South Carolina, and his name is Rick. And he's got a ministry to the poor and homeless, and um, he doesn't look at people like they're like poor and homeless. There's not like a racism in his heart. He just sees them as, as people. And uh, this guy actually moves in crazy prophetic power and accuracy. And there's just healings and, and stuff that follow him. Uh, one time he uh, went to a, a drug house where he uh, was trying to minister to this, this little gang that, where they cooked uh, crack out of this house. And, and uh, he knocked on the door and, and he, there was one guy that he had just led to the Lord who was kind of one of the main leaders of this little group. And that guy answered the door. And so he's thinking, hallelujah, I'm not going to get shot. And because so, he's got a little relationship with this guy. But um, this guy has to keep it on the DL that he is a believer for now because they would, they would kill him and hide the body. And so um, 
you know, they're kind of talking to each other in code at the front door. And uh, someone comes up, and an another one of the gang members, you know, comes up, and he's got a huge attitude, and he pushes the guy at the door away and says, what do you want, and gets all up in Rick's face. And, uh, and Rick says that the spirit of prophecy came on him, and, and he says, uh, next Friday is your birthday, son, and you're going to get shot if you come back to this house next Friday on your birthday. Don't come back here. And, uh, and then he, and they, I mean, there's, there's so much more. He tells him his, his mother's maiden name. He tells him things about his life that no one should have known. And um, <clears throat> that guy actually gets saved in the, door, at, in the doorway. Um, but he's, he's still in, the, uh, in that kind of lifestyle and, and flippantly like forgets the word or whatever and uh, goes back to that house next Friday on his birthday and gets shot. Just like Rick said would happen. And uh, when the, this kid is in the hospital, do you know who he put down as his emergency contact? Rick, this man that he met one time. It showed him more love than anyone else they would use as an emergency contact. And the hospital calls up Rick. <clears throat> and before they can say anything, Rick says, Johnny's been shot, hasn't he? He'd, the person on the other end of the line hadn't said anything yet. Again, the spirit of prophecy comes on him. He says, you know, he's been shot, hasn't he? And uh, the hospital says, how do you know? He says, he's been shot three times, hasn't he? The hospital, and they say, yes. And um, his prophetic ministry in that moment was so accurate that the police came and arrested him because they thought that he was part of the uh, crime. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it got straightened out real quick. They realized uh, what was going on. But that kid ended up uh, surviving. Hallelujah. Um, but this guy, <clears throat> he, he does all the, I mean, there are just so many stories. I want to tell you one more because it's fun to talk about this stuff. I love the prophetic. Um, the, the ministry building that they're in right now, he got for 10% uh, of the value. And he was meeting with the owner about renting just a corner of it. It's like a a big, like, like strip mall looking type thing. And uh, he was meeting with him to, to rent a section of it. But when he got with the owner, the Lord said to him, tell him you'll take it. And without even going inside, Rick says to the owner of the property, I'll take it. And, and the owner's like, oh, you want to rent this space? And he said, no, I'll take the whole building. And he laughs in his face and mocks him. And, and he tells him the price and it's, you know, over a million dollars. And then uh, Rick looks at him and says, no, God told me that you'd sell it to me for, it was like 160000 And um, And the guy, again, laughs in his face. That night, the owner has an encounter with the Lord, calls up Rick and says, the building's yours. <laughs> <clears throat> and so there's all these houses around the building, and Rick has this crazy faith. He's going to own the whole neighborhood and use houses for housing for uh, his interns, the ministry, and for homeless and poor people that he's trying to reintegrate. And so there's this one house in particular that he really wants, and um, <laughs> he tells this funny story about it was owned by an, uh, it's not funny, it's actually sad, it's, uh, an old guy owned it, and then uh, 
this young woman um, um, becomes his wife for the money, hoping that he would die soon. And, um, and then he does die, and so now she's the owner, and he, and he really wants this house. And so one day she calls him up and says, Hey, Rick, I know you really want my house, and I'm ready to sell it you know, to you now. And, um, and then names the price. And uh, <laughs> Rick pulls the same thing again and says, uh, no, God told me you were just going to give me the house. And the woman laughs over the phone. And she gets all indignant and says, if God told you that, then he can tell you where I am right now, what I'm thinking, what I'm wearing, and what I'm doing. <laughs> and Rick... He just says all he did was inhale. He went and said, you're wearing yellow flip-flops with purple flowers on them, blue jeans. You have a purse on your right shoulder. The contents of the purse are this, this, this. You've got a second cell phone in there that's actually your cell phone, but you're calling from another cell phone because you're in Buenos Aires with your boyfriend and your taxes are due tomorrow. That's what you're thinking about. You need to mail them in. Oh, and he says the number to the cell phone in your pocket is this. And the next day, she mails him the deed. She, and he, own, he owns the property now. Okay? <clears throat> and all that, stuff, all that stuff is awesome. We love the pow. Like, that is, that's just cool, Lord. Thank you. But I, when I was with him, I saw um, this guy uh, return to the ministry He's a homeless dude that he had fingernails that looked like talons. Uh, his hair had grown over his face. He looked just so demonized. He was in a wheelchair. Someone wheeled him up to the building. And Rick begins crying because his friend has returned. And I, I get the backstory. I sit with Rick and he says uh, when he first got into the homeless ministry, sometimes he would... Um, pretend to be homeless himself. He would live under a bridge for a week or two and get to know people, actually go into prison to bring people out. Does that sound like someone else we know? And, um, and you, you would sleep next to a guy that would have your back. You'd sleep in, in like um, shifts. And so this guy was his sleep buddy. And so Rick would catch some Z's and this guy would stay awake and guard him. And then this guy would sleep, and Rick would stay awake and guard him. And, and he disappeared. Rick thought he was dead. And, and Rick told me that every time he went out to go minister to the homeless, he was always looking for his buddy. He was always keeping an eye open. And this is years and years later. He just, someone rolls him up. And, and Rick is weeping because his friend has returned. And this is, I mean... He, I'm, I'm just being honest. He, he smells terrible. He, he looks terrible. And, um, and Rick helps. I'm, I'm there with him watching Rick help him into a shower. I'm there with him uh, when, when Rick picks out the nicest clothes that he can find in, out of his clothing drive and, and clothes him. I'm there when Rick is clipping his fingernails and his toenails for him. I'm there when uh, Rick finds one of our students who knows how to cut hair. And it gives the guy a haircut and a shave. And all of a sudden, he's, he's looking like a million bucks. He's feeling good. He, he's actually re remembering who he actually is. 
his real identity. And I tell you guys that because you're not going to have the kind of power that Rick has without the kind of love that Rick has. Amen. <clears throat> the Lord told me if we just become the body, then he'll supply the blood. So we, we love the blood. It's the grape juice. It tastes great. We love the blood. It's the power of Christ to transform and redeem, right? It's the power of Christ for, for miracles and salvations. We love the blood. We love to drink the blood, but we hate to eat the body. Guys, this is played out in a prophetic picture called matzah bread. Matzah bread tastes terrible. Don't even lie. Those wafers, they're so dry and nasty. You eat those things for communion, and you can't wait to drink the blood. You're like, come on, pastor, pray faster, because i got to wash this body down. Right? See, we, we, we love the blood, but we hate to get into the body. We hate to open up our lives, to get involved in one another's lives, to be the one that shows up at 3 a.m. to bail someone out of jail who you bailed out three months ago. Right? But if I were in jail, I would want a friend that bailed me out. <laughs> so be the one that bails people out. Be the one that shows up to love. Um, and he, he showed me... A, that he is pouring out his blood. He is faithful to pour out the power of his love and his blood. But it's, it just drains out of us because there's holes in our body. So we'll have a revival for a while. But it won't turn into a reformation because we're missing our hand. And all the blood drains out of the body that it was just poured onto See, we, we've got to find our place in the body, and we've got to lock arms and become one. It's Christ's legacy for us. All right. Number three, this is the final one. <clears throat> Ministry of... I think I spelled that right. Ministry of Reconciliation. Yeah. Is there, there two L's? No, just one L. He has given us the Ministry of Reconciliation. This is Christ's legacy for us. Um, one of my favorite things to preach on is the mercy of, uh, of Jesus and walking in his mercy towards other people. Um, and one of my favorite stories that highlights that is Stephen the martyr. Stephen lays down his life. And while he's dying, he's forgiving the people murdering him, just like Jesus did. See, Jesus, while he was on the cross, he looked down at his murderers and said, you don't know what you're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in that moment, acquits anyone who comes to the cross. Because he forgave the people that put him on the cross. Once you realize that you're one of the people that put him on the cross, then you can cry out for his mercy. And so he inaugurated uh, the, this path of grace, this, this whole new thing called the mercy of God. And Stephen uh, comes along 
Jesus is Stephen's hero. So Stephen is dying, he's being murdered, and he says something very similar to what his hero says. He says, don't hold this sin against them. And in that moment, Stephen dies so well, forgives so well, 44 verses later, do you know who gets ransomed? Saul, the guy murdering him. 44 verses later, Stephen's prayer comes into effect. The father does not hold that sin against Saul. And Saul gets transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and becomes the guy that writes our Bible. The guy that was murdering Christians becomes... Do you guys... Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Do you ever think about that when you're, when you're reading the, the epistles, all of Paul's writings? Do you ever think, I'm reading the words of a murderer? He killed people like me. That'll flip your wig when you realize that the Lord used the murder of Christians to be the one that brought so many new Christians in the kingdom for all of eternity. <clears throat> Blood actually cries out. <clears throat> After the fall... The very first generation after Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, right? And death manifests, hardcore, murder. A brother murders his brother. And, and the Lord says, Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. And then fast forward, and here comes Jesus being murdered by his brothers. In Hebrews 12.24 it says, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He canceled out that spirit of murder. <clears throat> he paid for it in that moment. And his blood is still crying out, mercy, 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 mercy. And it is the blood that flows through our veins. That's why when... That's why the Lord entrusts suffering to us. This is his legacy. He lays down his life for people, forgives them well, and ransoms them out of darkness, which is what we get to do now. It's what Stephen did. It's what Paul did. It's what all the apostles did. John was the only one to die a somewhat natural death, but we don't even know if he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> That could be a cool movie. He's still out there. <laughs> Every other apostle was murdered. Or if you, the proper word is assassinated. They were delegates of the kingdom of heaven, ambassadors that were assassinated. And each one of their deaths brought so many souls into the kingdom. I'm going to end it on this verse. This is um, Jesus' legacy for us, and it's in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And my question is, how did Christ reconcile the world to himself? Through laying down his life and forgiving 
So if you were wondering what your calling was, <laughs> it's the ministry of reconciliation where you lay down your lives for one another. You die so well. You forgive so well. As we have so many teachings about how to live well, but we're not going to live well until we know how to die well. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting our trespasses against us. He threw away the abacus, and there is no longer a tally of sins. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God is now making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is his legacy towards us. He became the curse and undid it so that we can live free of the curse. He transferred us into his body so that we can enjoy the inheritance, so that we can enjoy walking like he did. And he even gives us, hands, us, hands over to us his ministry of reconciliation so we can have the joy and fulfillment of changing the world for his name. This is a good, good God. This is our Jesus. Last week I said that... Um, Another word for legacy is inheritance, right? And Jesus, he is the firstborn among many brethren. And the firstborn in a rich family, historically, gets the company, the family company, gets the inheritance, gets to run things. And Jesus is the firstborn. And he's also God. And so there is a will, like a, an inheritance, the thing that's read when... when uh, a man dies. There is a will over the whole universe. This inheritance that God wanted to pass down. And it was going to go to Jesus. Because he's the firstborn among many brethren. But God died enacting the inheritance. The firstborn died so that the inheritance would be passed to you. Jesus so wanted you to have the inheritance that he died so it would pass to us.